welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te Suetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmagulu. And today's text, The Marrow Thieves, is written by Cherie Dimeline, who is a member of the Georgian Bay Métis Nation. And the book is set in and around Georgian Bay and much of northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Brenna, our land acknowledgement has never been more freaking relevant than <laughs> this know. week, I think. I know. Actually, Joe, can we off the top before we jump into the book, give kind of um a blanket content warning for the episode? Absolutely. Yeah, because I needed that when I was actually reading this. (laughs) Yeah, we can't talk about this book in any sort of detail without talking about the legacy and the violence of residential schools. And I'm Mm -hmm. feeling in particular, so Joe and I are recording this uh, the day after another grim discovery, well, discovery is the wrong word, Another grim evidencing of the Mm. settler colonial project in Canada, 751 unmarked graves were found in Saskatchewan yesterday. And and by found, I mean, I guess, confirmed. Mm -hmm. It's been a really awful month. Yeah. (laughs) And I just want to reach out to our settler listeners to say that it's not enough to just talk about how horrified we are particularly settlers living in the territory now known as Canada, I think that we all need to start taking some concrete actions. If we Mm -hmm. haven't yet, there's only going to be more of these discoveries and we have to not let it become background noise. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, you know, yesterday when the discovery was announced that um, there were three others in the intervening period between the Swetmick Nation announcement and yesterday's announcement in Saskatchewan. And they barely made the news because the numbers weren't as horrifying somehow to people. And I think we really need to recognize that this is a reckoning that needs to happen. So a couple of Mm -hmm. suggestions to our listeners, particularly those who live in the territory now known as Canada. If you haven't yet read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, it's written in very plain language. It's a long read and a difficult read, but it's not dense. It's storytelling, really. Mm -hmm. So... I encourage you to pick those up, particularly volume four, which deals with this issue of um, the children who didn't go home. And I also really encourage you to think about a financial contribution, either to a local First Nation that is doing this recovery work currently, or to the Indian Residential School Survivors Society, which provides counseling. We've talked about that resource on the show before. So Mm -hmm. it's really up to settlers to make some significant change and if we don't do it now why would anyone believe we would ever do it Mm -hmm. so before we talk about this really difficult content in the in relation to the marrow thieves today i think we need to just sort of be mindful that we also need action yeah and i think if nothing else it's an opportunity to acknowledge that Sure, we're reading this as part of book club, and we're gonna, I think, have some pretty good conversation. But this is not fiction. This is not dystopia. 
this is lived reality. And we have a responsibility as colonial settlers to put our money and our time where our mouths are, because we have committed genocide and we need to make reparations for that. Yes. And all of us as settlers benefit from financially from this legacy. Like the fact that this land was available for any of our families to reside on, purchase, do business on. uh, It's a direct result of practices, including residential schooling, that were Mm -hmm. practices of genocide. As we see you know, Cherie Demoline is really trying to give us like this modern reinterpretation of of what that experience must have looked like and felt like. And I think that, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 time to do some. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I was going to say, well, let's turn to lighter fare, but really, that <laughs> is know. not what's on the agenda, folks. No. So yeah, just that quick content warning once again, we are going to be talking about trauma and survival and the impact and legacy of the residential schools in specifically Canada, because of course, that's where this book takes place. Yeah, and it's not a pretty or a fun uh, history, obviously. What I do think is interesting are the ways in which Dibeline is really committed to moments of joy through everything that our characters mm-hmm. go through. And, and I really want to spend some time talking about that today. But first, in case you haven't been reading along with Book Club, uh, I'll have a little plot summary. Yes. <laughs> Good luck with this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the book opens and we meet our main character, Frenchie. Um, he is on the run with his brother. And the book sort of unravels, moving both backwards and forwards in time from that moment. The story itself has a clear through line narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frenchie meets up with a group of other indigenous folks from different communities and they are all moving north together and they become mm-hmm. a family. Yes. Traveling through this and they travel together for, I guess, we, we know that Frenchie's been on the run for five and a half years. So mm-hmm. two years by himself and three and a half with his adopted family. What we learn as this story unravels is why they're on the run. There's been massive sort of environmental degradation pretty clearly as a result of climate change and Mm -hmm. polar ice caps melting. The Americans have invaded looking for clean water. There's been sort of mass destruction uh, environmentally. It's all just a little too real. (laughs) It's all just a little too real. The pipelines bursting in particular is one of those Mm -hmm. moments that gives me pause and shudder, especially geographically living where I do. Yeah, you're not in a great spot for that. No, I feel like Kamloops doesn't exist anymore in this book. No, absolutely not. No, no. But what's happened is as a result of this environmental degradation, most people no longer dream. Whether it's a side effect of the pollution or the poison or the ramifications of violence is sort of unclear. But what does become clear is that only Indigenous people continue to dream. The idea is that dreaming is uh, something that is generated deep in your bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And so hence the the marrow thieves. Our our characters are on the run from these schools that have been rebuilt, some of them in existing structures simply reopened, which is something, Joe, that I think about a lot as I read this book. I drive past the Kamloops Indian Residential School three times a week when I take my kid to school. And just the ways in which these buildings are still so present in the landscape across this country, Mm -hmm. 
the idea that they could just be reopened, I think. Terrifying. Very terrifying and also like very real, feels very real to me. Mm -hmm. The idea is that uh, recruiters will snatch up indigenous people as they find them, particularly children, take them to these quote unquote schools and harvest them for their bone marrow in an attempt to, I guess, create some kind of dream solution for the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. I like that we never really discover how or what the byproduct is. Like we, we get this horrifying moment where I think it's Mig talks about finding vials. Yes, and dumping them in the lake. Yeah, but the mind boggles at trying to figure out, okay, well, what would you do with these? Because I'm imagining it's probably rich people who get to pay for mm -hmm. a vial so mm -hmm. that they can continue dreaming. And I'm using air quotes with dreaming because I think you can take it in a literal sense, but you can also take it in a deeply metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. But this idea of rich people appropriating not just indigenous culture or land anymore, but their literal bodies is, yeah, it's just extremely unnerving and uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's been a heck of a book to be reading against the backdrop of the news for the last few weeks. And one thing that I think is really interesting about what Dimaline does is she's not essentialist, by which I mean, like, it's not like every Indigenous character in the book is good and every non-Indigenous no. character in the book is bad. And one thing that's mm -hmm. particularly interesting is how allyship works in the book. I'm thinking about the two Guianese nurses um, mm -hmm. who rescue Isaac, for example, but also simultaneously how money and need and capitalism basically corrupt people. They corrupt people, right? Like, I'm thinking about the men who harmed Wob um, and ultimately kidnap mm -hmm. Rai Rai. Like, there's this notion in the book that it's definitely, it's definitely white supremacy at the core of everything that's happened, but that oh, sure. we yeah. all live steeped in it. And we all make conscious decisions, either to ally ourselves with good or to ally ourselves with evil. And like, mm -hmm. those are conscious decisions that we all make on a micro and macro level every day. Um, and I found that part of it really, really interesting as we looked at like the flashbacks of the different stories and, and how all of our characters ultimately are betrayed in some capacity to end up where they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe just to to wrap up the plot summary, because oh, yeah. I don't think we need to get so didactic as to say, okay, this happens and this happens. Like, no. basically, there's a series of different adventures, you know, there's a part where they stay at a hotel, there's a part where they are betrayed, yes, and they lose a couple of members, and then they end up deciding that they're going to fight back, and this is where they actually meet up with a kind of resistance movement that lives mm -hmm. in a cave. Frenchie is reunited with his father, who he has thought long dead they mm -hmm. attempt to re i was gonna say recapture they attempt to rescue uh an elder named minerva after they discover that she might be the quote-unquote cure to the new residential schools that have come up because she has this power to cause damage with her dreams and with her spoken language yeah because she dreams in the traditional language right and yes. the, the the whatever this machine and it's not hard sf right it's like we don't no. care we're not telling like we don't care about no. the science we're not that's not what this is about but whatever no. the machine is that harvests the bone marrow it can't process dreams in in the languages, in the traditional mm -hmm. indigenous languages. And so 
it's interesting because at the beginning of the book, Frenchie is really attracted to anyone who has the language because it just feels like a connection. Like it, fe mm -hmm. he says, hearing the language feels like home. But as the book progresses, that need for people with the language becomes more and more urgent as, yeah, they start to think that this is the key to undoing the harm and, mm -hmm. and destroying these schools. Yeah. And really, the book does end on a hopeful note. So there mm -hmm. is, because it's a YA book, there is a romance between Frenchie and Rose, who is uh, an extremely attractive, smart, great hunter, um, member of the group. And we also get the insinuation that uh, Isaac, who is the also long thought dead partner of Mig, who is the de facto leader of Frenchie's group, they are reunited and it's revealed that Isaac has the same power as Minerva. And the book ends on this hopeful note that maybe they will be the resistance and they will be able to stop this moving forward into the future. But it's also quite ambiguous as to whether or not they are successful. She is writing a sequel, by the way. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, because I was honestly <laughs> like, this is a satisfying end, but also it feels like the story, in a way, is almost just getting going. But mm, I struggle yeah. with this because what I know of Indigenous storytelling is that we shouldn't expect it to act in the same way that colonial settler writers would do it. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it isn't as streamlined and chronological. There's parts that don't seem as important, but they have a poetry to them that is valuable. And also that it's not about narrative resolution. It's about what it makes you think and feel. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, oh, by the way, everybody don't read the Wikipedia page on the Marrow Thieves. It's wildly inaccurate. And one of the things oh, that it okay. says is that her 2019 book Empire of Wild is a sequel to the Marrow Thieves. It's really not. First of all, okay. it's a novel for adults. And it's really a novel for adults. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, second of all, it's sort of it's set in present day, but it's um it's a spiritual ghostly story about the Rougarou, um, which is a kind of a werewolf type figure. Okay. It's good. It's really good. And it's really dark. It's a it's definitely a Northern Ontario Gothic. And it's definitely Ooh. scary. You'd really like it, Joe. Okay, yeah, you're pushing all my buttons. <laughs> but it's, it's not a sequel. And the Wikipedia okay. goes through to like, tremendous lengths to try to convince you that it's a sequel to this book. But she is oh, writing dear. one. And she is also apparently continuing to be at work on the adaptation. So we got tired of waiting and we're doing it for book club, but I will read the sequel and I will totally watch the adaptation if those two things ever happen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Joe, mm -hmm. we did have some folks write in. And we did. one thing I would love to talk about because you kind of just alluded to it. I want to talk a little bit about the love story. Yes. Okay. So we did hear from both Jane as well as Tea, Books, and Chocolate. So we'll begin with Jane because her email was a little bit shorter. And one of the things that Jane talked about was that they weren't really sure about the romance between Frenchie and Rose. So they found it the least interesting part of the whole book. Mm. And they're wondering if it's meant to ground the reader a little bit. We've got so much else that's going on that isn't really typical to YA. So is the romance there for a bit of familiarity? And Brenna, I'm curious to hear what you think, because I definitely agree with Jane. Yeah, yeah, I know neither one of you liked the romance. I didn't I didn't need it, but it didn't bother me. Okay. 
I think that the reason it's there is less to ground us in YA tropes, because I think ultimately Dimlene's not really that interested in it as a mm-hmm. in, in YA tropes just in general in this book. But I think okay. that it has more to do with the importance of joy in the novel more ah, generally okay. and the importance of a forward look. Mm. And so I guess what I mean by that is this book is dark and upsetting um yes but it's not a death march you know like you move through the narrative and you skip between moments of humor right i'm even thinking about when like minerva is captured just before she's captured she and frenchie have this exchange right where she's trying to communicate something to him and he doesn't get it and part Mm -hmm. of what's so frustrating about frenchie through that whole part is he is so dismissive of minerva for so long yeah, basically the entire book until she gets captured and then he suddenly decides she's the most important person to him. And you're just like, you're such a teen boy. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, so I think that those moments of humor, those moments of levity, those moments of childishness are really important to the overall readability of the text. And also just the fact that like, oh, here's where Brenna comments on the publishing industry in Canada, but like... Oh, okay. Hot take. A lot of the Indigenous storytelling that gets published in Canada is really marketed and sold on the basis of trauma. When you actually dig in and read these stories, they're often very much not just the trauma, but the back of the book blurb, what you hear about on Canada Reads, um, what draws audiences, settler white audiences in, unfortunately, is often trauma. And so I think that in Indigenous literature, more generally, humor and joy and love are sites of resistance, uh, not just against Mm. colonialism, but against the way that storytelling is marketed often, you know? And we've talked about the same thing with trans writers, right? And the way non-trans audiences seem to be quite obsessed with trauma and the traumatic coming out story and how hard it is to publish anything else. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of that going on here. So while I agree that the love story isn't my favorite part, those glimmers throughout the text, Wob's pregnancy, for example, the reuniting mm-hmm. of Isaac and Mig, I think they're really important to the idea also of an Indigenous future, right? Like, yes. it can't just be these characters. Yes, and that is something that Jane remarks upon as well. It's one of the things that they liked the most about the book is that it reminds us that there isn't just a historical legacy, but also that Indigenous people will continue to be here and they will continue to be vital and important as we move into the future. Well, and that the project of settler colonialism is likewise ongoing, right? Mm -hmm. If we're not actively unpacking it, what are we doing to prevent this kind of near future? So Frenchie's mom was born in 2027. So that's the timeline we're looking at for this book, maybe the Mm -hmm. 2060s. And there are elements of it that are fantastical and dystopian. Of course there are, but there's also elements of it that feel really possible and really present. And I think that that's part of what's happening in that storytelling choice. Right. So moving over to tea, books, and chocolate, we've touched on a number of things that they identified in quite a substantial email, which I greatly appreciated because it was, oh, it was really so good. fascinating yes. to just really read through a lot of this kind of rich unpacking. But um, maybe we can begin with the way that the book is written because we're we're talking about trauma and how so many of the books are 
not steeped in it, but that they are often marketed that way. Mm -hmm. And it is undeniably a book about trauma. Absolutely. Yes. Tea, Books, and Chocolate says that the first-person narration and how it sidetracks into other characters' story is really helpful in conveying that trauma. And they actually say that they their background is trauma psychology. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So um, Tea, Books, and Chocolate goes on to say the things that have been studied about trauma is how trauma memories are disorganized and full of extraneous detail and how the narration being a little bit nonlinear helps hammer home the trauma of the experiences by directly reflecting how they might process this. And I thought that was a fascinating connection. Also, if you think about Indigenous storytelling, which is often circular and nonlinear and filled with interesting tangents and so on. So it was mm-hmm. like, oh, mm, what mm-hmm. a what a connection. Well, totally. And the fractured nature of memory in general, I think the book does a really good job of evoking. One mm-hmm. of the things that I really like is Mig spends the book laying out the history of what has happened for the reader, but you don't get it all at once, right? You get Mm -hmm. it in pieces, you get it in stories at the campfire, you get it in each individual characters coming to understand what the situation is and coming to find this family. Mm -hmm. I like that you kind of had to earn it, like we as readers had to as much as the characters within the book. Oh, yeah. It's like, Frenchie is desperate to know why Wob has the the scar. The scar on her face, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like, he's not obsessed with it, but it always comes up, right? Every time he right. mentions Wob, he mentions the scar, and he mentions that he still doesn't kind of know what happened or the history there. And mm-hmm. so when that comes out, I mean, in that moment, it's a mark of how broken down Wob is in that moment. Right. But it's also signifying Frenchie's coming into the family, right? And the idea that right he's now privy to all the knowledge about all the people. Likewise, as he learns the end of Mig's story, which he hasn't gotten until he's sort of mature enough and contributing enough to the community to be trusted with it. And so Mm -hmm. as readers, because we're reading through Frenchie's viewpoint primarily, unless we're inside someone else's story, we're also earning that connection to the other characters in a way that I found really effective. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thinking specifically about Wob, Tea, Books and Chocolate talks about the intersectionality around Mm. the depiction of violence and the specific way that her identities as Indigenous and woman are ways in which she is harmed. And impoverished, right? Like her poverty is really important to the situation she finds herself in. I was intrigued by the way that Dimaline threads through not just the backstories, but gives us a sense of basically how society crumbled. And I really get that sense in Wob's background where she was living in Toronto. She was not safe. The idea that she was able to use her status as a fast runner to exploit people's need to communicate and that kind of stuff. Like so much of the book is about communication, but I loved how it's another way that people took advantage of indigenous abilities, right? Like she had this unique thing and other people wanted to exploit it. And as a result, she was the one who was harmed. It's interesting because there's something about Wob's story that for me evokes, well, I don't know if this is a stretch, okay? But um, in the Second World War, before the Enigma Code was broken, the Americans used... Navajo folks and folks from other indigenous communities who could speak the language still to act as 
coders effectively mm-hmm. because they knew there was no way that the German army would know Navajo. Yes, there's actually a film that I think John Woo made with Adam Beach and oh, Nicholas really? Cage about that. Oh, okay, cool. So Wob's story reminds me of that because she has this skill, right, that mm-hmm. is useful to people, but it's ultimately not useful enough to protect her from the larger settler colonial project to protect her from exploitation, right? Like those mm-hmm. code talker guys were promised all kinds of things. And many oh, of, of those promises and pensions and payments were never realized or only realized mm-hmm. after years and years and years of court battles. Right. And so it's this fascinating to me echo throughout history. And I'm sure there are other examples of indigenous knowledges being valued in particular historical moments, Mm. but indigenous people never being treated with that same value as like the skill in the moment, if that makes sense. And I, Wob's story to me is really evocative of that. Yeah, no, that, that is fascinating, right? Because the context of this particular story is that indigenous people become these incredibly valuable assets only when something has gone awry for the white colonial settler population, right? And then all of a sudden, they're like this hot commodity that needs to be tracked down that needs to be commodified into valuable resources. I think it's just a really clever, uh, it sounds terrible to say, it's a really clever way that Demoline makes readers like you and I, Brenna, appreciate that there are so many ways that we have I guess, commodified and used up Indigenous talents and people. The other story that it evoked, and I think part of what I like about this book is that um, there's all these, to me, there's all these allusions um, and there's all these connections throughout history to all kinds of different concepts and all kinds of different people. And like, it's a book that really rewards like digging in and finding these kind of connections. And The other person who Wab made me think of is a figure named Thomas Longboat. He was an Onondaga man who was a distance runner, and he was like considered one of the best like runners in the world. He ran marathons and stuff, but he was also a soldier in the First World War for Canada. And if you read the old history about him, and I I listened to a podcast about him, which is why he came into mind, but if you read like the contemporary documents about him, it was like he'd win a race and everybody was like amazed and thrilled and excited. Mm-hmm. But if he lost a race, there was all this rhetoric around like, quote unquote, like the laziness of his people and stuff. And like oh, the geez. idea that his humanity was always contingent on his performance. Mm-hmm. And that's true for Wob too, right? As soon as she can't run anymore, her mother has, has no, no use value. for her. Yeah. Her community has no use for her. And she disappears into the bush, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's her salvation because she ultimately finds a family and she ultimately learns that there are people who can be trusted. But what a trauma and what a history and what a story of being used that Mm -hmm. you're right, steeps through the whole narrative. Yeah, because really, at at the end of the day, every single member is contributing in different ways. And it's more obvious with certain people where they have identifiable tasks and responsibilities, right? Like Mig is the leader. We've got 
Chai Chai doing surveillance and like keeping an eye out so that they don't fall into traps so they know what's coming up and so on. Like, I love this idea that everyone has a task, but really at the end of the day, the most important thing is that these folks have found a new family. Mm-hmm. Like that is their responsibility to one another. And it it didn't really solidify to me until Rai Rai is abducted mm. when the group is betrayed. And then almost immediately Minerva is captured and taken away. And you just start to see the fractures and why it affects everyone so dramatically. For me, the real moment where the family crystallizes is ironically almost at the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. when Frenchie has found his father again, but Rose is leaving the community. Mm-hmm. And Frenchie, he doesn't know what to do, right? Does he follow Rose or does right. he stay with his father? And he's really torn and he goes to see his father. And there's this moment where his father just kind of knows that he has mm-hmm. to go, like that Rose is his future and Rose is yes. the new family that he's going to make. And... What's interesting is that the book doesn't end with that escape, right? The book Mm -hmm. ends with Rose and Frenchie deciding to put their leaving on hold to help the community one more time. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's quite a lot of ambiguity in there. Like, will they really leave? Or did Rose just need to know that he He wanted to be with with her? her. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly just great storytelling. We Mm -hmm. can probably deduce what happens next, and yet it doesn't need to be spelled out. No. Like, I didn't love the love story, but I did love Frenchie. It's almost like his moment of becoming a man, right? Yeah. And, oh, and setting out on his own. Right after we get, like, Joe and I were just talking before the show that the most frustrating part of the book with Frenchie's character is that he gets jealous of this guy from the community that they come upon, the Resisters, because there's a guy who's flirting with Rose. And it's like, so frustrating because obviously mm-hmm. Rose doesn't like him. Like it's just yeah, yeah. teenage boy bravado nonsense. And then Joe's yep. like, yeah, but he's finally relaxed enough to be a teenage boy. And it's like, oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. It's annoying, but I have to give it to him. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't make it easier because it's so obvious to us. And And if nothing else, I love the subversion of that trope, because we've seen that a million times, mm-hmm. except that that is the central conflict. Whereas here, it's a distraction to say, oh, this teenage boy can finally act like a teenage boy and not have to be a warrior for his people or a scout or like someone who's propping up people to make sure that they don't fall behind. Like, oh, he can just be a boy. And that's yeah. when it becomes a conventional YA story, right? <laughs> It's true. It's totally true. (laughs) So let's pivot to a question that Tea, Books, and Chocolate poses to us, because they want to know what exactly do we think is meant by dreaming in the book? So what does it represent? In a very rigid and literal psychologist brain, they say, obviously, this is REM sleep and what our brains do and the idea that people literally cannot dream anymore. But by the end of the book, they suggest that it feels something more like a connection to ancestral knowledge and the people and the land and non-human kin. Mm, I think so. I think also um, an ability to imagine the future, right? Mm. 
I think the literal interpretation is also correct. Like the people who can't right. dream, it's not just that they go to sleep and they wake up and they haven't dreamt. It's that they go to sleep and they wake up and they aren't rested, right? And they're mm -hmm. taking drugs to try to fall asleep and they're taking drugs to try to wake themselves up. And there's, yes. without that dream, like in that sense, dreaming very clearly has to be REM sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So they lose the ability to see the future. Like, and I don't mean that in like a seer sense. I mean this idea, <laughs> this ability to imagine otherwise, right? Which is a phrase that um, I first learned from Daniel Heath Justice. Uh, he's a Cherokee scholar who's at University of British Columbia, and he wrote a book called Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. Ooh. Yeah. And in that book, he, this idea of imagine otherwise, like he talks about sort of the notion of indigenous literatures being often about surviving apocalypse because indigenous people have literally survived mm. apocalypse before. Yep. And I'm going to read a quote from him. He says, I think it's really hard to live in a different way without being able to imagine what that might be, said Justice. This is from a CBC article. We are all in various ways the result of our ancestors' imaginings beyond whatever they were experiencing. And so that notion of imagining otherwise Frenchie's ancestors were able to imagine otherwise, right? His father was able to imagine otherwise because he sought out this council and this community and attempted mm -hmm. to make this resistance. Isaac can imagine otherwise because he can imagine his way into an escape, right? Like these are right. all examples of imagining otherwise. And so when we see a settler colonial society that fails to imagine otherwise, Mm. That's mm. stuck. <laughs> that's stuck in this experience of exploitation and exploitative relationship to the land and exploitative relationship to other people. We see the remnants of that in this book, right? Like the environment is destroyed. The human experience mm -hmm. is destroyed. And so I think that dreaming is yes, that his that connection to history, and yes, that very literal need to friggin' sleep, but also this ability to imagine otherwise that is so critical to progress and moving forward and like improving society nothing gets better if you can't imagine an, another way forward absolutely and the book really advocates for this idea that there are other ways right like mm -hmm. it took me probably until about the midway point in the book to realize that we are reading a narrative that takes place almost entirely in the wilderness in the mm -hmm. woods people mm -hmm. are climbing trees they're pitching tents every night it's why the section where they end up staying at the hotel feels so different. Mm -hmm. And to a lesser extent, when they get to the cave, it's not just that it's a permanent residence and the illusion of safety. It's that there's a different kind of connection to the land, to their experience. I think so much of what appeals to me about indigenous culture is just how steep to history and the environment it is. And I love that it's not just, oh, white settlers have lost the ability to dream. It's that the environment has been compromised. We have mm -hmm. fundamentally ruined our livelihood. And the indigenous people find safety and security by returning to that environment. And there's something really rich and poetic about that. It's also really interesting to me when Mig tells the story of this dreamlessness descending, that the first thing the settlers do is like the New Agers, right? They try to ingratiate themselves in Indigenous community. They try mm -hmm. to um, learn the secrets of dreaming. Yes, so they can steal it. <laughs> exactly. And so when that's refused to them, right, they just take it. Yeah. 
violently. And I, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that a lot in relation to, you know, the other sort of trending news in Canadian culture, I guess, is this this emergent discourse about like pretendians, quote unquote pretendians, settlers who feign an indigenous identity in order yeah. to sort of claim space like people in academia are super guilty mm-hmm. of this. We see yep. examples with like, well, Michelle Latimer's story. We see it with mm-hmm. Joseph Boyden. Like these these figures have always existed, but sure. there is an increased awareness of it right now. And so to me, this is, this is the same practice, right? It's like, I want to learn about your culture. Well, you can learn this much, but these things we keep for ourselves. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to tell everybody I am you and then I'm going to take it. Yes. It's not that many steps removed to steal someone's culture and identity and family ties and connection and kinship mm-hmm. to stealing their dreams and their bone marrow. Like it's right. actually philosophically no. not that big of a jump. No, it's the next little baby step over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I will say one of the things that I most appreciated is that this book is highly accessible. Like you can mm-hmm. read this, you can take from it what you need, even if you don't have the cultural awareness. But there's also so much in here that you just know that we're missing because we don't have the lived experience or the direct connections. Like there's repeated reference to bundling in the Mm -hmm. book. And I know this because I've taken Indigenous workshops through the Ontario Friendship Centre. So I I know about the concept of bundling and what it entails and how it's deeply individual and personal and steeped in history and connection to your ancestors and so on. And I'll never forget. So I was one of probably a dozen white folks who took this workshop, which was, of course, delivered by an Indigenous woman, which is fantastic. So, (laughs) so patient and tolerant of us. So she was walking us through what was involved in this. And at one point, this one white faculty member raised their hand and said, so now that I know this, could I make my own bundle? And she looked at him and said, well, yes, you could, but it wouldn't be an authentic bundle. Mm-hmm. Basically, she was saying, yes, you could steal my culture, but it would be inauthentic <laughs> and completely fake. But she said it with a giant smile on her face because she was like, I'm here for my paycheck pay me for this knowledge, pay me for my time. It was glorious. I'll never forget <laughs> it. But I loved it because every time I saw the word bundle in this narrative, I just had that little extra gleam of insight mm. into what it meant. And it richened the story for me. And along those lines, I really love the way Dimeline uses languages, plural, several different mm. Indigenous languages mm-hmm. in the story and different dialects of different languages. And that there are no translations in the book. There's yeah. like one. We find out that the word nishin means good because Rose mm-hmm. gives that knowledge to Frenchie. And thereby to us. And thereby to us. But otherwise, we mm-hmm. are... Work our way through it. Yeah, exactly. And and what's so powerful about that is that Frenchie is so desperate to collect the language and he feels mm-hmm. it's such a necessary task. And so... I don't know. There's something really powerful to me about the language being just left to stand. We've talked about this in relation to to other sort of non-dominant literatures, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. phrase, that being left on the outside for settler readers is actually a really important experience. Mm -hmm. Get used to getting uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, and and it's also about Frenchie's alienation and growing connection and community as the narrative progresses as well. That's important, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I I do. I agree. It's accessible. It is a YA book. Like it's, 
There's a lot in here. I've taught this novel several times, and every time I find things that I didn't notice before. Oh, yeah. It rewards multiple reads, and it rewards coming to it with different knowledges and different experiences. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's the mark of a YA classic, right? Like, this is a book that Mm -hmm. I can see being taught 25 years from now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a bit fascinating to have done this back-to-back with Firesong, Mm -hmm. which is a very different and yet like-minded contemporary Indigenous text, right? Mm -hmm. Very different approaches, very different even subject matters, and yet I felt like I got a lot out of reading two different versions of a modern Indigenous text. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, it's worth remembering, like, Firesong as an adaptation, it's a lot less accomplished as a narrative Mm -hmm. but what's nice is that there is now maybe for the first time space for lots of different approaches to indigenous storytelling we're maybe getting past the highlander phase of publishing's relationship to indigenous literatures and and that can only be a good thing let's hope so Mm -hmm. so brenna before we sign off let's Mm -hmm. check to see if we heard from any last minute listeners about their experiences with the marrow thieves so Brenna, we did end up actually hearing from two more folks. So we'll begin with Victoria, who has written into us before. And Victoria made an interesting connection to a film that will mean absolutely nothing to you, but means a lot to me, <laughs> which is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which is a film all about teens who are obviously afraid to sleep because of Freddy Krueger, but they have a shared collectiveness that allows them to activate their their potential and their special abilities when they dream. So it's oh. really interesting, valuable connection there, Victoria. So they go on to say, I think the book is not only a call for action, especially for the justice of the indigenous communities, especially for those lost to residential schools, but it is also a hopeful reminder that, in general, human beings strive on the support and safety of community, whether they are born into it or have to create it. It sounds trite, but it is true. Communities and human connection are what keep us from a dreamless existence and helps us to find those dreams and experiences into fruition without judgment and without losing them forever. I just thought that was a really lovely summary that I don't want to say that we glossed over it in the earlier part of the episode, but I think the the concept of dreamlessness really resonates with people. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And I also think recognizing the power and value of community uh, is really important because, you know, in many ways, the the project of colonization is about destroying communities and unraveling them. And so, yeah, no, I, th- I felt that was a really good connection to make. And I think thinking about how community functions in this text is really helpful when we want to talk about it as a, as a story of resilience, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that actually kind of dovetails a little bit into what Abby wrote us about. And Abby touched on a number of different elements that we've raised, but I wanted to bring up this piece. So they say the key to survival and freedom laying not just in dreams, but the language resonated beautifully. I know Mm -hmm. that my struggles are not comparable to those of indigenous people, but my grandparents lost Yiddish long before I was born. And sometimes I feel that cultural loss and assimilation as a deep ache. I like this piece not just because of the idea of community, but also this this suggestion that people from marginalized communities might actually 
find a deeper connection to this text. Even though, as Abby says, it's not comparable to Indigenous people, I think that's one of the strengths of Dimily's book, which is that a lot of people can read their own experiences into it. Abby's comment made me think of a Welsh word that I am almost certainly going to mispronounce, uh, which is... (laughs) It's hiraith, and there's no like direct translation, which is why I like it. I love words there's no direct translation for, but it's kind of this idea of like a nostalgia for an experience you've never had or like a deep longing, a deep desire for a past that isn't actually your own past. Um, And it's spoken of in relation to, you know, like Welsh people longing to return to a pre-colonial era for themselves where their language was spoken freely and they, you know, had freer access to to that cultural history. But I think a lot of us who come from a variety of different experiences have something like that for a past that we can't access, but maybe our grandparents could, and we, we wish we could kind of go back and repair those ties. I think it's mm-hmm. actually a really common human experience. Obviously, what differs in the context of the Indigenous experiences that this book addresses is that notion of kind of like the settler state and the right. the impact of like a government structure, right? It's not an individual loss. It's like a, a social or community loss. But I still think that, you know, that's a very human way to connect with the experiences of these characters and of colonized people more generally, right? Like mm-hmm. indigeneity isn't the only experience of colonialism and there are huge connections among groups who have been marginalized by the larger colonial project, I think, across the board. Right. And thinking a little bit about that idea of like, not just indigenous people, not just in specifically the settler colonial project we call Canada, I'm going to jump back to Victoria, and they ask, I wonder if this plague only affects North America, or Mm. if it affects the rest of the world? Are Mm. other indigenous tribes in other continents falling victim to the same brutal harvesting? How would it be different? And then they ask, what do we think? And I'll confess, it never occurred to me, if only because there's something about this text that feels really authentically Canadian to me. Mm. But it did get me thinking about what the experience might be for uh, our our Commonwealth sisters down Mm. on the southern part of the globe. So I was thinking, what would this text look like from an Australian perspective? Mm -hmm. Because there's something far less hospitable about the environment to escape into there. You know... Victoria's question, it took me down a a dark rabbit hole, I guess, but something that Canadians don't like to remember is that um, we're the architects of a lot of this kind of Mm -hmm. approach to settler colonialism, you know, like the architects of apartheid came to Canada to learn about the Indian Act and how it functioned before taking those policies back to Australia. Well, the, the... you know, Carlisle Boarding School in the U.S., which is thought of as the blueprint for indigenous boarding schools, quote unquote, as they're called in the States, that was taken from a blueprint from the first Canadian residential school. Those government officials came up to Canada and learned what Canada was doing with the quote unquote Indian questions. So, you know, when Victoria asked that question, my first thought is like, well, Canada's probably exporting this practice all oh around the globe. Gosh. Oh my as gosh. We have throughout our colonial history. And um, yeah, it's, you know, the whitewashing of Canadian identity is like mm-hmm. one of the one of the best sort of global snow jobs like ever. 
because that's all I could think of when Victoria asked what this would look like elsewhere. Like, well, probably like this, probably learned from this. Yeah. And that's not to absolve Britain, by the way. Like, <laughs> Britain is the initial <laughs> architect, of course. But there's, you know, there's a particular approach to the bureaucracy of colonialism that Canada has very successfully exported globally. And I suspect that this would be no different. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of connections and things that uh, have been gently lifted from other cultures, we'll jump back to Abby for the final word. And they ask, I'm curious whether you think there's a connection between the way that dreams work and the Latin American tradition of magical realism. And this is another interesting piece where culture can intersect, but maybe also needs to be kept distinct. Because I'm thinking back to our conversation about magical realism when we mm -hmm. talked about Eden Robinson's Son of a Trickster. Yeah, Eden Robinson's very explicit that this isn't magical realism, this is realism, right? And that her version of reality includes magic and includes a kind of different way of seeing the world, different way of experiencing and being in the world. Mm -hmm. So Eden Robinson's first book, Monkey Beach, uh, there was a lot of conversation about magical realism in her text. And I should say, like, Abby's not like off on one here. A lot oh, no, of scholars write about indigeneity and magical realism. And particularly, though, I will say a lot of settler scholars like to right. use the lens of magical realism, both when it comes to Latin American literature and um, indigenous literature. And I don't mean that exclusively, but I think Eden Robinson's perspective on this, which is that magical realism is defined by your positionality. And if you mm -hmm. experience magic, quote unquote magic, but if you experience this spiritual um, otherworldliness connection as part of your lived experience, as part of reality, well, then that's not magical realism. It's just mm -hmm. realism, right? So yeah. yeah, I just think it's it's interesting, especially when we especially when we tie it to this loaded construct, which is realism, right? Like some things are real and some things are not real. And Eden Robinson, I think, is asking us to look at a different way through, which is very much the tradition that Cherie Demeline is writing in, which is mm -hmm. what if what you think of as realism is much broader than you've experienced it before. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like that disconnect between two different lived experiences. And I think for often white settlers such as you and I, this makes sense because we don't view the world through that lens. So mm -hmm. we see the connections and we say, oh, yeah, they're probably in conversation with one another. And mm -hmm. I think for the two groups that are being conflated, they're saying, no, this is a very distinct thing. And we challenge you to try to look through it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that giving yourself over to either an Eden Robinson or a Shuri Demoline to say like, okay, you set the ground rules, you tell me what reality is, and I will mm -hmm. follow can be a much richer reading experience if you can kind of let yourself do that. Yeah, yeah. It's not something that comes naturally, but I think it could be something that carries a lot of merit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, quick thanks to Victoria and Abby for getting those late responses in. We really do appreciate it when people hop into the conversation because it forces even Brenna and I to reflect and think about our own reading experiences. And it's always just great to hear from folks. Joe, can we share some late breaking news before we go? Absolutely. We just found out this weekend that uh, Sheree Demoline's sequel 
to the Marrow Thieves is coming out in October. So if you liked this and you want more from this world, as Joe and I were talking about, we would definitely read a sequel. Mm-hmm. It's coming October. Yeah. At least that's the Canadian publication date. Americans and global audiences will have to wait a bit or order it from Indigo. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. I was very, very excited when you showed that with me. Okay, so Brenna, I do not want to play YA Bingo with this No, text, thank you. No, thank you. But I would love to hear about where Book Club is going next. Okay, Joe, I am really stoked for you to read this next one. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope you're not disappointed, but I'm really stoked for you <laughs> to read it. So I think I've talked a lot on the show about A.S. King. She's one yes. of my favorite YA writers, and inexplicably, there appear to be zero film adaptations adaptations. and no film adaptations in the works so thanks to book club i got tired of waiting and we're gonna go with her first really big smash which was please ignore vera deets a.s king i guess content warning but maybe just just awareness um a.s king deals really frankly with mental health and youth Mm. but her books are really funny and really uh, playful and engaging and her protagonists are whip smart and i think you're going to enjoy this one a lot joe Okay, I'm super excited. Yeah, because I feel like you've been talking a big game about ASP for a long time. And I've never read any of her stuff. I know. I'm really excited for you to read this one. So the last one that I talked about on the show, I think was Dig, which was all about white supremacy and like race and wealth inequality, and yet was hilarious. So Hmm. I'm very eager for you to meet her in this book. Fantastic. Okay. And where are we going next week? for our return to proper adaptations. Yeah, so this is a weird one for us. We're reading Greetings from Bury Park, which is a nonfiction, I believe, about an Indian teen who loves Bruce Springsteen. It's a little bit closer to new adult because I think he's just getting out of college. Oh, okay, okay. And we're watching the film adaptation, which is called Blinded by the Light, uh, which came out in 2019. Mm. So yeah, this is going to be a different one for us, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. And then in two weeks for our next minisode, I'm just giving people a heads up because we are going to be back to TV land. So we're going to check in with Never Have I Ever season two, which should be coming out on Netflix soon. I am excited. But Joe, if John McEnroe is still in this show in season two, I'm going to scream. Okay, just make sure you do it away from the mic because I definitely (laughs) think it happens. All right. The show is great. Otherwise, this is very much like a love Victor needing to kick Simon to the curb situation. 100%. Yeah, I'm very excited to revisit this show because I think we had a lot of fun with season one, but there Mm -hmm. was some room for improvement. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for a love Victor season two scenario where the show has acknowledged what it's doing great and leans into it. Yay, I hope so. Okay, Joe, so folks know what they need to be reading and watching. And if they want to let us know how they're feeling, they can find us on Twitter. We're at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. And for anything long form, it's HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And so you are reading Bury Park. You are reading Please Ignore Vera Dietz. You are watching Never Have I Ever. And we will see you on the page. And on the screen. See, I changed it up there on you. Ah, oh, you, you took me by surprise. I like it. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.